Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alcher, and this is a project of CNG Partners, Design for Culture. Today, I am joined by Beth Van Wye to talk about the secrets of complex cultural project management. Aha. Beth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. To get started, for those who don't know you, would you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? My name is Beth Van Wye, and I'm a project manager at Becker de Frondor, where we do owner's rep project management work and cost estimating. I focus primarily on museums and cultural projects because I spent quite a bit of time in-house in museums and am a recovering architect. So I speak many of those languages. And after many years of traveling exhibits and installing exhibitions, provide an outside owner's rep role in helping manage the complex project. Okay, so I have to ask you, what, what does it mean that you are a recovering architect and what is the treatment for that situation? <laughs> so I was trained as an architect and worked for quite some time as an architect in Connecticut and found that many of the projects that I was on I wasn't getting an opportunity to talk to the actual users of spaces and would design these areas that couldn't actually function as well as they should for the end user of space, which led to me going back to grad school for industrial design and user research and tangentially led to thinking about visitor experience, flows through spaces. And you also said you worked in-house in museums, like which, what kind of museums or which museums? Yeah, I worked at the National Constitution Center for quite some time in their exhibition team and over their traveling exhibition program. And then was at the Indiana State Museum Historic Site as the Vice President of Exhibitions and DOE over engagement and historic restoration exhibits and programming. Wow. Okay. So you've answered my favorite side question, which is how did you get into this business? Sounds like the first thing you did that was in a museum was the at the National Constitution Center. Is that right? Actually, my very first project in a museum was in high school. I did my Girl Scout Gold Award project, helping a museum in my hometown catalog their entire collection. But even at that time, I didn't realize that was museums were a career path. Studied architecture and did that for quite some time. And then after grad school, I worked for Design Philadelphia, coordinating a citywide design festival stepped sideways into the museum world through a former student who was looking for project managers in their program at the Constitution Center. And that's how I ultimately entered into the museum world. Got it. Okay. So you stepped sideways. Some people step backwards, sideways. Someone like, <laughs> some people say some other verb, like I fell into it or I tripped over something. Okay. And you said Girl Scout, what was it? A gold award project or? The Girl Scout Gold Award, the equivalent of the Boy Scout Eagle Scout. Got it. Okay. Wow. This is terrific. All right. We have an excellent topic today that I'm super excited about getting into, and I'm sure many listeners are going to be interested in this one. Uh, we're talking about the secrets of complex cultural project management. What inspired you to come up with that topic and spend some time preparing for it and writing down the list of things we're going to be talking about. Where'd that inspiration come from? I think a lot of it came from working with organizations every day that have major projects, whether they're implementing a master plan or thinking about a major collections move or 
doing a big gallery renovation or addition, and that there are a lot of logistics to go into that work, but an understanding of some preparedness ahead of time that can help from the client side, or if you are the designer working with the client. And I think everyone at the start of the project has the same goal of a successful project, but when they get into the weeds and it's unclear who makes the decisions or who's in charge of dealing with something that nobody could have planned for, that it gets pretty messy pretty fast. But if you can take some steps ahead of time, that can help make it run more smoothly. Let's get right into this. Here we go. As always, I know the list, but not much more. And my guest has the rest. So we're talking today about secrets of complex cultural project management with Beth Van Wy. And number one on your list, and I think this is in no particular order, right? Correct. Okay. So number one is anticipate unknown challenges. That's secret number one. Anticipate unknown challenges. Say more about that. Why is that an important secret? And how do we do that? How do we anticipate those? So it sounds counterintuitive to try to anticipate something that's unknown, but one of the many things that we've learned through every project is that there's always unknown challenges. And if you're able to prepare for how to react to those or what your process is going to be when you start to do renovations and discover something behind a wall or open up a space and it does not look anything like you thought it was going to look, how you're going to react to that and whether that's from financial considerations, approvals, or timelines, being able to anticipate or know that you're going to have unknown challenges ahead is being able to prepare for plan B, plan C, plan D, et cetera. So I saw, I saw you speak recently at a conference and you were talking about a project, which is quite a complex cultural project that you managed and had many <laughs> secrets now that I think about it. And I remember you were talking about some situation just like that, where you were opening up a wall or there was something that was a, the drawings made by the architect decades before said that the wall had this and this in it. And in fact, it did not. And am I remembering that correctly? You are. That's a great example. The drawing from the early 1900s showed where the plumbing would have gone in the floor. We opened up the floor and there was no pipe that we needed, we could attach to. We knew they had to be somewhere, but they weren't where they were supposed to be. So that was an unknown challenge that we were going to have, but we anticipated that there would be something like that occurring. So it had built in contingency and a way to work through the unknown so that we could dig further, look more laterally to help find those questions. For our audience. I think some of the folks who listen to this show are, would know that word contingency and some of them might not. And for those who, anyway, for either of those groups, can you define what you mean by contingency, first of all? So the contingency is a portion of your budget that you hold for all of the things that you have no idea how you, what might be ahead of you. And this can often be broken into something that a contractor's contingency, if you have construction going on. It is held for just these types of things that you open up a wall and things aren't there, or you realize you have to put in insulation or move a door that wasn't planned for, and it helps pay the cost. We always recommend that you also carry an overall project contingency because you might not realize that 
you're going through something and you need to hire a lighting consultant that you hadn't planned on doing or that you need to do hazardous material abatement because you opened up a wall and found out that there was asbestos behind it, those types of things. So it helped cover the cost for the projects that you couldn't, for the elements that you couldn't budget directly to. And what one caveat that I would always recommend is that contingency is going to be spent. You don't know exactly where it's going to be spent, but it will end up covering something. Okay. That was number one, anticipate the unknown challenges. But number two, I think there is a reason for these two being together. Number two is understand the known challenges. Yeah. So understanding your known challenges is often really unique to each cultural institution and it can be part of if you have to have special approvals by various board committees, understanding the timelines of when the decision-making factors are part of your schedule. It can be knowing that you're going to have to, this is part of a capital campaign and you need to do all of these donor tours. It's a known challenge that if you're in the middle of install, but you have to schedule walkthroughs every Tuesday for donors, that could impact schedule. Other known challenges might be if you're in a city environment and there's special permits that are going to be needed, or you're going to have lender requirements, or you have grants, so you have specific reporting structures for how the project needs to be run or managed. So those are all known challenges that will be unique to every project, but every project has them. So I think my big question there is understand the known challenges. So if I'm a listener, I'm going to say, how? Like, how do I find out if I'm coming into a situation where yeah, the museum has known challenges because the board meets every month and you have to give them a briefing package a week before. Or we're in the city of Walla, Washington. And of course, in Walla, Washington, you have to present to the city planning, whatchamacallit, but only in July and things like that. So how do you find out what those things are if you're coming in to manage a project and you don't know? So a lot of times it's talking to any of your design team, whether it's your architects, your contractors, the exhibit design team, anyone that's worked in the region, also your fellow other museums that are in the area. If you happen to be in a location that you have fellow museums that you can talk to and they've recently gone through a project, talking to them is a great way to understand what some of their challenges had been, but also asking, did they have special permits they had to report or did they get state funding so that has certain restrictions or requirements and i think a lot of it is stepping back for a moment and thinking about how you as an organization institution work and how that impacts other pieces when is your budgeting season how do you currently want to run things are there elements that you want to change as the project implements that are part of stewarding who you are as an organization mm -hmm. moving forward that can help implement during this process. So because we're talking about complex cultural projects, you just mentioned something I think is important, which is uh, if other museums in the region have gone through something similar, they probably learn the hard way. So learn from them the easy way. So would you say, again, the title here is complex cultural projects. This isn't like ordering creative toilet paper for the museum. Would you recommend always doing that? Find a precedent, the closest precedent you can find and interview them to find out what they had to go through. Someone local or someone with a 
another museum that, I don't know, had to drive a space shuttle over to their museum or whatever it might be. Is that a key part of the process for these big complex things? I think it is. I think benchmarking or looking at similar organizations, so figuring out where you align in the industry of what similar projects have been, whether they're in your same community or of a similar size or similar mission to reach out and see who's been doing what. I think also looking at organizations like the Building Museums Conference that is run by the Mid-Atlantic Association of Museums, which focuses solely on building museums. And that's a really great resource for meeting other museums that have gone through projects, talking to other professionals that are dealing with these complex issues every day. Because likely to your institution, this is the one or maybe two major projects that will happen during your time at that organization. So that's more ways to understand the known challenges. I want to circle back to something you said in the middle of this section, again, just so our listeners know what that, know what that is. You talked about timing of decision-making permits because of the city that you're in, benchmarking, et cetera. But you also mentioned something else, lender requirements. And that's a very specific thing. I have a feeling I know what you're talking about, but can you say what how, what is that? What is that known challenge? What does that jargon mean? So there are two types of lender requirements. One is related to artifacts or objects that you might be borrowing from another museum or organization or private lender, but there's also financial lenders. So if part of your project is being paid for through a financial loan or a connection to any funds or foundation those lenders have reporting requirements of how you're documenting projects, how you're documenting money being spent, construction, the bidding process, selecting any of your partners, contractors, et cetera. Huh. Interesting. So it's like the people you're relying on to give you things will be giving you the things conditionally. So, Correct. you know, you're getting the Rosetta Stone from, I don't know where the Rosetta Stone is. It's in Rosetta. No, it's not. I'm kidding the British Museum or wherever they have it, they're going to have requirements for security, et cetera. And you need to know that's a known challenge, ensuring it while it's on the boat. But also those who give funds or those who give other forms of support, right. they will be giving those things conditionally as well. They'll have requirements. And it's, yeah. So it's, in other words, what you're, what those both fall into is a category of known challenges that are exterior to the museum, but are part of the project. So you have right. to know And they can things. drive the project. So sometimes the funding source might have very strict bidding requirements or how you find partners for construction that could add three to six months to the process with selecting the partners. So that is definitely a time restriction. The same with if you're borrowing artifacts, if that those out by museums or organizations only meet once or twice a year to approve lender requirements, then you need to build that into your timeline. I'm, I'm imagining a graphical timeline, a Gantt chart produced by Beth Van Wy is requires many pages and is very colorful, but clear. We do a lot of Gantt charts or those long bar charts, if you're not familiar with Gantt charts, but we also try to do them so that they're much simpler and user-friendly. <laughs> yeah, that's our effort too. But I, people who know me know that I love a good color-coded matrix or chart. I love those. Super helpful. Okay. So that's all number two. That was understanding the known challenges. But number three, 
has me interested. This is prepare for unforeseen conditions. How do you prepare for something that you can't see? So I think part of it is understanding what type of project you have. If you're doing a brand new building, you're likely not going to have unforeseen conditions, but the chances are you still have to dig a hole in the ground or do some sort of change to a physical place. And you can't know everything that's in there, but if you can start to prepare for those unforeseen conditions, anticipating if you're digging a big hole, you're going to need to do soil testing, for example. So being able to understand that. If you are renovating a building, you can prepare for the unforeseen that you can't get behind a wall or above a ceiling to confirm if you have hazardous materials. But if you know it was built in a certain time period, the likelihood is that you're going to have those. So doing the work ahead of time to line up the experts or professionals that you'll need to do those types of specific work of doing environmental testing or air quality testing to have them ready to go when you start demolition. Because there's nothing worse than finally getting your contractor on site and they start demolition and three days into the project, they ground to a halt because they started to peel up the floor and found old asbestos-filled tile that now has to be tested and then removed. So being able to anticipate that those types of things are likely going to impact your project and have everybody lined up ready to do the work is can help save weeks or months, which keeps projects on budget and on schedule. So these are all like detective work that you do? You figure this out and then you get a crack team of researchers or testers or whatever to check that out in advance, right? Have I, right. Am I reading that back to you the right way? And do you do that yeah. before the project starts? Do you do soil testing before you hire someone to start digging up your soil or do you have them do it? It depends on the type of project. So if you may have your design team at the very beginning say, we know we're going to, the project is definitely going on this location. So why don't we go ahead and do the soil testing or geothermal work or whatever might be needed? Because you're also going to have to do civil engineering that might confirm that legally you can build on that property. There's a lot of work that those experts would have to do, but some of it you might want to do at the beginning. Alternatively, if your project is that you're hiring a design team just through concept design so that you can then fundraise and get the money to actually pay for the project, you might not want to do all of that testing because if you can't raise the money in the project, stops it can after that initial phase. You don't want to have done all of the testing and exploratory demolition if you're not going to actually move forward with the project. You just said something that made my ears perk up. You have to be thoughtful about what you invest in. You might not do the whole thing, every kind of due diligence that costs money at the beginning, if you haven't raised all the money yet and you, you're just doing concept. So it makes me wonder, you've seen a lot of things. How often does a project stop in your experience for lack of funding? Or by the time someone calls Becker and Frondorf where you work, is it kind of like we're doing this or what's the percentage? 10% of the time, 90% of the time? It's interesting. I'd say the last few years, COVID math adds an asterisk to that percentage, but I'd say maybe 
15 to 20% of projects might get stopped because they don't have the funding. They also sometimes get slowed down. And I think that's where we'll do a lot of work if we're early in the project and understanding the client's needs and their appetite for risk or ability to fund elements of the project where we can put together a cash flow where we're showing where expenses would hit based on the project and when the cost would happen so that they can understand we do this, then we reach this level and we decide to move on to the next phase. Whereas others know that they're going to save money by committing to the entire project and going full steam ahead, it's always going to be more expensive to drag it out. But if you don't have the dollar to do it faster, you need to look at it that way. We saw a few projects during COVID that slowed down, but or stopped, but often they all move forward. Just in it, just might change its framing throughout the cycle. Excellent. I forgot to ask when we were talking before about contingency to make it practical for listeners. What is the percentage of a contingency, or what's the lump sum, or whatever? If you're if a general, if you're, uh, you have an architectural bid package and we're going to build this new wing onto this building and it's this complex and it has windows like this and has a roof like that and it's swoopy and whatever, and we dig a little foundation and everything. Okay, general contractor, start making it. At that point, what contingent, what percentage of money do you set aside from whatever they bid at that point for that? Is it 5%, If 20%? we're at the stage where we have a... 100% construction document, and we've done some pre-construction work with a contractor. We might be down to a 6% contingency, but oh. often we try to hold 10%. We recommend 10%. It almost always gets cut to 6 to 8% because that's how you start to bring a project cost down, not our recommendation. But early on in the design process, we'll always start with a much higher contingency where you don't know but you're going to allocate it at some point. So at the beginning, we might start with a 20% contingency. And then as decisions get made throughout the process, some of that money might get allocated to construction or exhibit design or design fees or furniture, these types of things. We'll bring that down so that once we're moving into construction documents or into building the construction document, down to 10%, down to 8%, those types of things. Got it. Okay. Terrific. Let me do a quick station identification. If you're just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners, Design for Culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also write a whole review in Apple Podcasts, or you can just tell a friend. So thank you so much for helping to spread the word about making the museum. Now back to the show. We are talking with Beth Van Wy about the secrets of complex cultural project management. And we've talked about the first three, there are six total. And next up after number three must be number four. And it is indeed number four, document the approvals process in advance. Document the approvals process in advance. What does that actually mean? What is the, what approvals process are you talking about and how do you document it in advance? I think a big piece of understanding how your organization wants to, want to finalize 
the direction of a project, whether it's the architectural drawing, the exhibit design, the finalization of an object list or what's included in your exhibit, understanding who the final decision makers are, whether it's the CEO or the head of collections or the CFO is really important so that you can understand who's in a working group and who will make recommendations to those final decision makers, but how that has to happen. And if it has to go through board committees or executive committees, that's also critical to understand because that timeline will impact the decision-making process. And that breaking down the approval process is really important, whether it's the spending of money or the hiring of uh, individuals or the completion of contracts, it's really critical to know who has to sign off on those, who has to approve them, and how we then get them implemented. I've seen many projects get held up in the contracting phase where we had a great committee that had people from all the different departments of the museum that helped select the exhibit designer. And then we get to a contract and the museum didn't identify who their lawyer was going to be to approve the final contract. So we spend three months going back and forth on contract approvals and refining the language. And we've lost the momentum of that design committee that was originally select, selecting the different design teams. So being able to just have that written down somewhere and communicate that to your partner is really important. So you just mentioned board committees and executive committees timelines affect the process. Now in the green room before the show, we were talking about that, that sometimes boards or executive committees don't, you can't just send them something and say, what do you think? Just approve this. They only meet at certain times. And sometimes that's not anytime soon. Can you say more about what you've seen in that department? Yeah, I think understanding the role of, if you have a real estate building committee or finance committee, and if they have to report to the executive committee who then takes the decision to the board, and if they're recommending a decision for approval or they have to get it onto a board committee panel, it's really helpful to know, does your organization meet monthly? Do they meet quarterly? Or does the board only meet twice a year, but they have to physically sign off on any contract that's over $100,000? which many construction and design projects do equal something that's much higher. So it's a commitment to the outlay of funds and those decisions can have major ramifications. I worked on a renovation project where we knew the board had to sign off on something in June and we went to bid to contractors in, originally in April and we built into the process of when they were giving their budget time to go to the facilities and real estate committee to get their input while we are in the middle of bidding, which is not something that contractors typically do. They want to give you final numbers and then get a contract approved. But if we had waited for that, we wouldn't have had final numbers until two days after the board meeting. So we were able to work with the committee to say, oh, if it's in this range, which we knew it was going to fall in there, we will approve up to XML and then be able to do an email vote to finalize the contract. Otherwise, we would have had to wait four months for the next board meeting. So it was just understanding the parameters ahead of time allowed us to build it into the request for proposal, 
the bidding process and streamline it to get the contractor signed and under contract quickly. So now I'm starting to imagine that colorful Gantt chart or that sort of horizontal cascading chart of bars and everything like that, that your Gantt chart has lots of little dots and diamonds and squares, special things in parentheses and all that sort of stuff. If this doesn't happen, that has to move this way in time and we need to make this. And if we don't make that, this whole thing has to be like that. Is Am I describing what one of your Gantt charts must look like for a complex cultural project? Very much. There's a few on the wall behind me that you see as the background of my office right now. And you can start to see I've got uh, colorful Yes. Bars. Okay. I did. Streamlining. I'm, yeah. I wasn't <laughs> looking at that. Now I'm looking. So for listeners, this is an audio medium, but we record in a way where Beth and I can see each other and behind her, she's in her office right now, actually at Becker and Frondorf. And there are quite a few now that I notice it, very colorful and very clear Gantt charts and some floor plans and some other things back there, which look like, yeah, that's, looks like you spent a good amount of your time trying to arrange time in your favor using tools like Riot. <laughs> okay. Uh, you also mentioned something I want to circle back on in particular, which is something I've never encountered, which is that you were working on to get to a contract, but the museum didn't identify the lawyer who was going to approve it. And it took extra time because of that. I thought I'd heard it all, but that one I hadn't heard. So that really happened. The museum needed legal counsel, but they didn't have one. And that, then that held you up. I guess now you, that's on your checklist to ask. That's your, that's now your, not an unknown. That's a known unknown that you ask about in advance. Is that? And it was an interesting, they had a lawyer who looked at a lot of things, but they didn't have one that was a specialty to construction because they had never taken on a construction project. And so when we started and reached out to their lawyer, we realized they didn't practice. Their firm couldn't handle that type of work. So then we had to shift to find somebody that could. So I think making sure that you have the right teams of professionals, not just the, oh, this is who we've always worked with, or this member on the board reviews all of our things, that they've actually got the expertise and the professional pieces in place. So it really sounds like behind the scenes, I guess that's why we call these secrets, that behind the scenes, you're really doing a lot of diagnosis and advance preparations for these unknowns, as we've been saying. Girl Scout Gold Award is echoing in my head here to protect the innocent from themselves and find out what's, what's behind the wall, not only literally, but metaphorically. And that, what, what percentage of your time is doing that versus actively managing? What percentage is prevention? versus cure, if you will? Uh, I think we try to spend as much of the beginning of the project doing that prevention so that we have to do less cure down the road. Mm -hmm. they, we often say that spending $5,000 now will save us $50,000 later if we're able to do an exploratory thing so that we can open up a wall or ask a question or check the, the parameters ahead of time to make sure that we're ready to go. And so a lot of the early on planning process, we often like to come into a project at the very beginning so that we can help ask those questions. Many times we get called as construction starting. So we're past that point of being able to answer a lot of those questions. If we're at the beginning or if you are starting a project and you don't have an owner's rep, 
as part of your team. It's asking, trying to dig out as many of these questions at the beginning to start to move you forward. So you just said owner's rep, and that's a very fluid and fluent way you just said that, owner's rep, rep the owner. I'm going to do some owner's repping. But can we define that for our listeners? What is an owner's rep? That's owners an owner's representative. What does an owner's representative do? So we are an extension of the owner's team. So as the owner's representative, we're your project manager, but our vision is your vision. So we're not the design team. We're not the contractor. We are part of your team as the owner, implementing what your vision is and what your decisions are. But we also handle a lot of the minutiae of all of the meetings to bring you the decision points or the the bigger pieces because so often you don't have the capacity to actually run this major project. You need to be able to do your everyday job. And so by being an extension, we often work with contractors, architects, exhibit designers every day. And we'll sit in, we'll be in those 40 meetings that happen that week to bring you one meeting of decisions and directions that have to happen. We also, at least at our firm, of all the project managers, some of us are architects or recovering architects with myself. Some are still practicing. Some are, were in the construction field and they worked as general contractors for a long time. Some have come from museums, come from nonprofit management. So we're doing every day these types of large projects and can add on to your team to bring that level of expertise and help hold the rest of the team accountable, but also work with them to pull out their expertise as part of the process and ask the questions that the owner might not think to ask or know that they should be asking. So I'm guessing from what you just described, all the things that you do, that when you say sometimes your clients don't have the capacity to run the project, capacity means they don't have the people. It's people capacity, not capacity of a water jug. I'm imagining that therefore there are some organizations, there are many organizations out there that do have the capacity to run a project. They very regularly are building complex things and they have a whole team of people. But going back to something you said earlier, these projects that you're involved in, they're often one or two project projects in the entire career of people who might be at, in their whole career or at their career at one museum. Mm-hmm. It's the only one that occurs. So they, by nature, have no experience, no, they don't have someone waiting around to do it. So is that when someone would call an owner's rep, when it's like, we need expertise to run a complex project like this. We don't do this during the day. We don't do them all the time. We're lacking that. So we have to call you up. But there are some organizations where they actually do have that capacity. And so they wouldn't need to call you. And I think sometimes those organizations like universities, campuses, where they have a ton of buildings and are often have a building project happening every year, every two years, they might have the in-house capacity. Sometimes we're also hired by them where they've outgrown their capacity because they're having a major building campaign or we'll do cost estimating for them to help understand the complexities of their overall project to help provide another set of eyes. But for so many smaller organizations, they don't have the in-house capacity because like we said, they may only do one or two of these projects in their career or in the lifetime of that organization. 
And so they don't have the staffing capacity to take on a project of that scale. Got it. Okay, excellent. Uh, let's see. Number five is define, this is our fifth secret, define project parameters. What's flexible versus what's locked in? Say more. What is a project parameter? Yeah, I think this is unique to every client. A project parameter could be something like the collection has to stay on site during renovation. Or it could be that we're building this whole new building, but we've already worked with the architecture team. So the exhibit design team has to assume that the gallery is already designed. So they can't make any changes to the physical outline space. Or it could be that you can move any of the walls that you need to, but we can't go outside the footprint of the building. You can rearrange all the interior walls. That could be a project parameter. Or it could be that we need to make sure that we have all new HVAC systems, air conditioning, relative humidity, those types of things. So we have to hit those types of parameters in the new space. It could be any one of those, any that we haven't named, but understanding your organization needs of what's flexible and what's not flexible in your process. You have a hard opening date that cannot move. So you might have to spend more money to get a project to hit that deadline. Or is that a flexible element and it's the budget that is locked in and we only have X dollars? That's all we can take care of this project. So if it takes an extra six months, it takes an extra six months. So it's a little bit, there's that old saw in project management, fast, cheap, or good, pick two, right? Right. I don't know about you, but in my practice here at CNG, I very rarely have clients coming to me saying, we'd like to do a project with two of the following criteria, fast, cheap, good. Which do you recommend? Usually it's all three, right? Usually it's, we want right. this to be done on time. We want it to be done on budget and we want it to open to rave reviews. And but it sounds like that, that, the reason I'm bringing up that, that metaphor is it sounds like that's, a, that's a way I could think about project parameters, because like you were saying, if there's a hard opening date that can't move, that's, that's fast. So spend more money to hit that. That's cheap. So if you want it fast, you can't have it cheap or is the budget locked in, that's the cheap part, then you might need more time. So that's when you have to give up some of the fast part. And do you find that, for one thing, do I have that right? That's yeah, right. that's exactly it. And I think part of why we're giving you all these secrets of complex cultural project management is to try to get closer to all three, right? If you're able to set those ahead of time, how many of that, those, can you communicate to your design team of what the parameters are so that they're working with that full set of knowledge. And do you find that these parameters, I think you made it pretty clear just now that the parameters are, as you said, they're unique to every client. And I assume they're also unique to every project. Like a new a second project with an existing client could have totally different parameters because with project number one, they might have all the budget that they need, but with the second project after that, they, they don't. So they're going to spend more time instead of spending more money. But do you find that certain parameters, because the thing you're talking about is which ones are flexible and which ones are fixed, or as you said, locked in, do you find that in projects that there's certain parameters that are most often locked in 
and certain parameters that are more likely to be flexible? I do think it's unique to every project. Part of me wanted to say that everybody says that the budget is locked and that's where it is, but we find that as costs have risen, as projects are more competitive, sometimes that has become more flexible, even though at the beginning of the project, they didn't want that to be flexible. We're recording this in April of 2023. You just mentioned that costs are going up. You mentioned COVID before. What do you find, just in brief, what do you find about costs today? Have costs for construction projects gone up after all of the supply chain intrigue that we've had over the last three years? And have they, they gone up and stayed up? Have they gone up and come down a little? For the most part, we have seen costs go up over the last four years. And we've always built in escalation, which is understanding when a cost is going to go up if you're not building it today, you price it. You can anticipate that it will escalate over the next year, the next two years. So we always escalate four to five percent, depending on per year. Some of that is cost of living increases, but are salaries. That's not coming down. The cost of labor is not coming down. That's continuing to go up. And we're seeing it labor specifically being an extremely tight market because there are so many building projects happening that we're just struggling to find enough contractors to build the thing. Material costs have stabilized, so we're not seeing as much continued skyrocketing escalation like we saw from the supply chain issues, but we are still seeing some really long lead times. Doors are taking a really long time. Elevators are taking a really long time. The things that didn't used to be quite as long of a lead time are impacting major construction decisions. So we're having to make decisions out of sequence to be able to get in line for that elevator purchase, for example. Of course, if doors are going up, of course, elevators are going, well, of course, going up. Okay. It's a bad pun. I was about to make a joke about elevators <laughs> having doors in them and therefore it's going up, but then it's like going up and it's okay. I'm going to, I'm going to forget this entire attempt at being humorous. But You're going to close the, the door on this one. I'm going to close the door on this one. Okay, we really have to stop this. Okay, but I do want to ask on a more serious note. I think it is kind of serious. You just said escalation of, you, you typically build in 4 or 5% escalation costs. I literally, before we were doing this session, one of my colleagues burst into my office and said, I just looked up the in inflation cost of living index and it's 12%. And I was like, what do I do with this information? I wasn't sure what to say, but have you found that it's going up higher than 4 or 5% or is it 4 or 5% in general? where labor as a contributing cost might, might be higher, but it's four, four or 5% overall. Like, how does that work out? For the most part, we're seeing it at four to 5% overall. Some things have gone higher, whereas others haven't skyrocketed as much. So it has held pretty steady, even with the variety of changes over the last few years. COVID. Okay, good. Phew. All right. We escaped the big numbers and the botched attempt at comedy. Okay. So number six, six out of six, although this one does have a few subtitles here or a few sub sections. So number six generally is know your client. And you brought up earlier three points under this. So I guess six A, and I'll name them all. A, who is stewarding the project and do they have authority? B, does your direct client make decisions or get them made? And C, is this their main job or an extra side job? So let's start with 6A. That sounds pretty important. Who is stewarding 
the project and do they have authority? I think a big case was understanding who in-house as a client has the role and responsibility of making sure this project happens. And are they somebody that was appointed by the board or by the CEO? Are they managing other projects or do they happen to be the CFO? So they're in charge of stewarding this project from the very beginning of selecting design teams, architects, et cetera, through opening day. And are they the person who can make decisions on authorizing contracts, on selecting finishes, approving object lists, or do other people have to make those decisions and they are just making sure that those people are making decisions on a schedule? Understanding that from the beginning will really help you set up the right order of meetings, the timeline, thanks us for getting things through, but the designer, you don't want to find yourself in a meeting six months in and the designer saying, do you need glass case vitrines or acrylic vitrines? And you're like, I don't know. And I don't know who to ask. You're going to lose a week, if not months, working through all of that and the ramifications of budget impacts, et cetera. So being able to understand who is stewarding it and their role in the decision-making process, which earlier when we documented the approvals process, that's part of it. It's where do they fit into this and who are they going to get decisions made? So you mentioned a couple, you mentioned, is it the CEO? Is it the CFO? Those are individuals. That Each one of those right. is a usually a person, or maybe it's in rare cases, a co-CFO or something, but it's really one person. So it sounds from what you're describing here, that one person is very important to you as an owner's rep. And it, a lot of the success of these projects, I guess when I think about it, that is true. They do come down to just a few people needing to be the right person in the right place. Or like you just said, every time you ask a question, it's going to take months. Is that right in your experience that you it's need to have either those? an individual or a small team. So often there might be a small working group that is put in charge and they might be three people in the leadership team or an exhibit department. But who are the one to three, four people that are in charge of this whole process? So you could have a giant group, but that's not going to be better than having one, maybe two or three people who do the stuff because the giant group won't be able to do that. So I'm just... I'm reflecting philosophically here on what you and I both do is that these are these very complex projects with often hundreds of people get involved or even thousands. If it's a really big, complex, multi-stage building and exhibition, I don't even know what it is thing, but in fact, it comes down to, uh, there are a few people who are quite pivotal. And if they, you don't have the right person in the right place, like you're saying, things can go south. Next thing. That goes back to the understanding the approvals process, but also as you put together, if it is a whole team of three or 30, what the roles and responsibilities those team members have is really critical. Are they decision makers? Are they recommenders of options and decisions? Or are they just providing their input from their expertise that maybe you build a team that has somebody from every department, from education, exhibit, collection, marketing, operations. So all of those people are at the table and providing their input, but ultimately somebody has to decide 
especially when that input is at odds with one another, what direction is most appropriate for your organization? And so having that articulated at the beginning can also make it a successful process for everybody who's involved so that they know that their role on a team is providing input versus making recommendations for decisions or making ultimate decisions. I think we just went over 6B as well. 6B is, does your direct client make decisions or get them made? But there's still a 6C left, our last one. Is this their main job or an extra side job? And that really resonates with me because reflecting on past projects that we've done here really is quite important whether the person that you're talking to, if it's a large project, has the, we often say bandwidth, right? The bandwidth, like everyone's a Wi-Fi router, if you have the <laughs> bandwidth to do this, or if, like you were saying, is the CFO the main person you're talking to? If so, watch out because CFO has another job. It's called being a CFO. How do you find that out in advance? And again, what happens, what happens at both extremes of that situation? I think part of that with knowing your client, or if you are the client, knowing your capacity to take on a major project is understanding that, is this going to be an other duty as assigned? Museum loves having other duties as assigned as that last descriptor on a job description. And that ends up being 90% of somebody's project work. But understanding that is this something that you are telling your staff is a priority? And so other projects don't have the same weight or importance and can be put to the side when they suddenly have 12 hours of meetings a week to take precedent. Or is this something that they're weighing in on but need to keep doing their day job because they're in charge of running the entire institution or making sure that everything is fully staffed with security all the time and they don't have time to weigh in on decisions or oversee everyday construction. So understanding your capacity and if it's important for it to be their main job, are you giving them release of all of their other duties or not? And that's where we have to come in as owners rep is that they acknowledge that we have 10 people working on this, but for all of them, it's a few hours a week. How do you delicately find out? Because sometimes it's a sensitive question. Hi, it's nice to meet you. I'm so excited to be working with you for the next few years in this project. Tell me, are you capable of running this project? And do you have any time to do it? Or like, how do you determine that? Or do you just use your magic secret detector system? Usually we ask. We might not be quite as direct and we'll get them to tell us. But some of it is starting with who are our main contacts? How, as an addition to your team, can we relieve the stressors that are on your plate? What are the pieces that you're most worried about today that you don't have the capacity to do, whether it's a knowledge base or a time base? so that we can start to understand what expertise they're bringing to the table because they may be in a role at their current museum, but they actually work somewhere that they helped run a major gallery renovation. And now they're in a different capacity, but they're bringing that knowledge to the table. Hmm. Or they may have never done anything like this and they come from a fundraising background. So they need to understand how that plugs in. So understanding who the team is that we're reporting to and is in charge of it 
but it is a little bit of a skills assessment and a knowledge assessment and having a pretty frank conversation of what is their capacity and availability for meeting, for reporting, asking them what their reporting structure needs to be so that we can understand, are we doing weekly meetings? Are we doing bi-weekly? Are we sending email updates? Do they want a team chat every day at five o'clock with an update? What are the right ways to communicate and get them the information so that they're able to keep succeeding at what they're doing every day while this project moves forward? Okay, quick recap. This was our list for today. Let's see if I got this right. Uh, we're talking about the secrets of complex cultural project management. And we had six items on our list. Number one, anticipate unknown challenges. Number two, understand the known challenges. Number three, prepare, prepare for the unforeseen conditions. Number four, document the approvals process in advance. Number five, define the project parameters, what's flexible versus what's locked in. And number six, know your client. I don't know if someone masters these six secrets. You said before, I guess you say around the shop, $5,000 spent now will save $50,000 later. But I bet if you can master all six of these, I don't know how much money you could save, but it's a big number. I've been writing these down. I've noticed like when you're in the green room before and now it's like, wait a minute. All of these things apply to my personal life. Anyway, how did I do? Did I get the recap right? That was exactly it. Excellent. Beth, it has been great to have you on the show. Great. I've really enjoyed the conversation. So if, if those listeners would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Would you like them to email you or look at a website or LinkedIn? What's the best way? Uh, email is probably the easiest, and that would be e van y. B-V-A-N-W-H-Y at BeckerFrondorf.com. We'll put that link in the show notes. I don't have to spell Becker Frondorf. Absolutely. B-Van-Y at BeckerFrondorf.com. Awesome. I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. And in exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news that you can use. If you would like to get in touch with me or have an idea for this show, go to makingthemuseum.com and hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger. I'm always looking out for new links in or whatever you call those. You can also find me at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. Okay, and that's it for this episode. By the way, did you know this podcast has an older sister? It's a very short newsletter every weekday under the same name. One quick insight a day for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience professionals. You can subscribe at makingthemuseum.com. Big subscribe button in the menu up at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.